Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 109 of Control the Controllables. As I was about to start speaking, I had a little check to see when episode number one went out. And I found out it was exactly one year ago today. So that means we've done 109 episodes in a year. My maths isn't the best, but that works out at almost one podcast every three days for the last year, which I have to admit has brought a big, big smile to my face to know that we've been able to continue bringing these quality shows to you. And that's all down to everybody who's continued to listen, continue to reach out. So thank you guys for that. Today's episode, we've heard a lot about what COVID-19 has done to the tennis ecosystem. And one of the biggest parts of that is U.S. college tennis. Since last March, across all five divisions, there's been approximately 60 programs that have been cancelled. And that's, uh, that's going to, again, impact future generations, right? There's going to be less scholarships there for the next generation of, of Dan's and Dave's that want to go to the States and, and, and play on a tennis scholarship. And that was David Mullins. David Mullins is the current managing director of the ITA. For those who don't know what ITA is, that's the Intercollegiate Tennis Association who plays such a, a, a massive role within college tennis across all of the divisions. David was also Oklahoma head coach for 12 years. He played for four years at Fresno State. He really does know the college tennis system so well. He also played on the Pro Tour, not for very long, as you'll find out in the podcast. And he's been a big part of Irish tennis over the years as a Davis Cup player, as someone who's then gone back and played key roles within the performance world. And he still sits on the board at Tennis Island. David speaks well. He's a wealth of information, and I thoroughly enjoyed the chat. I hope you do too. So, David Mullins, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks for that exciting welcome. It's it's been a while. Eh? It's been a while since we've caught up, and and since we've uh, we've caught up, you seem to have been here, there, and everywhere. I've managed to keep up with you. What you, what's happening on the internet and your blogs and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into some of that detail. Yeah, I am too. We obviously go way back down and, and competed against one another uh, in, in, in college. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a long road and it's great to see that we're both still involved in tennis at, uh, and, and expressing our passion in our, in our daily work. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that's the, the starting point really as well, because tennis Tennis is this thing that connects us all, and and I know you run a podcast as well, and it's mm-hmm. and the and the whole 
getting to re-speak to people and reconnect with people and and actually realizing just how far all of our roots have grown <laughs> and, mm. and the places that it's taken us has been it's been amazing for me but where where did those roots start where was that where was that seed planted for you in the tennis world yeah so i grew up in in dublin ireland i'm now living in in phoenix arizona but um yeah really probably around the age of 10 i i i, I always into sports played a lot of sports uh love love football uh probably the most but was on holidays in, in France with my parents at some campsite somewhere, nobody to play with, found a tennis court, a tennis wall, and just started hitting the ball against the wall and said, oh, this is, this is kind of fun. And, and uh, yeah, just really from there, got into it, started playing, you know, uh, at the local club, just kind of a, a public club for tarmac courts and, and uh, kind of a, a construction hut uh, as a clubhouse um but just found some other kids to play with and and just fell in love with the sport within within a few months and um yeah played you know the tournaments and stuff like that and and probably by the age of 12 was one of the better Irish tennis players unfortunately after just about a year or so of playing uh don't know what that says about uh my my peers but um by the time I was 16 was was really into it and started playing tournaments in in Europe won the Irish national championships and, you know, knew I wanted to go to the States on a tennis scholarship and uh, did that, received a scholarship from Fresno State in California, uh, played four years there, absolutely loved my experience, loved everything about college tennis, played professionally a little bit for about six months or so afterwards, got up to about nine, 950 or so ATP ran out of money, uh, ran out of desire to do it, and um, moved into the, the college coaching ranks uh, a year or so after that. Worked in finance a little bit, had my undergraduate degree in finance, did some coaching at clubs and things like that. But really, if I was going to coach, it was going to be at the college level. And uh, so ended up coaching for, for about 12 years. Well, thank you for joining us. That was a great podcast, Dave. And <laughs> that's it. You told the, you've told the story. Where, 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 do I, where do I go from there? But no, if I <laughs> there's a couple of things I want to pick up on actually that I find quite that I find quite ironic in some ways is firstly that you found your passion in France even though you lived in Ireland for, for tennis. So that, that's, that's one thing that comes through. And the second one is that you, you were brought up playing in a, on tarmac courts in, mm. Isle, in Ireland, which again is quite abnormal for, for the Irish way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. It's uh, I kind of, uh, yeah, most, most of the courts, obviously artificial grass. You know, if there were indoor courts at the time, they were carpet or, or maybe even wood. Um, so I, to grow up on a, on a slow tarmac court, obviously when it rained, I might just hit some serves or something like that. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't move a whole lot, but, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was all I had. It was all I really knew, um, to, to get started in tennis and, um, actually learned how to rally and, uh, deal with higher balls and things like that, where a lot of Irish kids, yeah, absolutely. if it was above their knees, uh, were, were struggling, struggling to hit that ball. So yeah, it's just just how it how it got started. Now now that club's evolved a lot. It does have it has seven artificial courts. It has three indoor green set courts, which is 
it brought a tear to my eye when I when I moved back there in 2016 to see indoor courts at this club that started with just four tarmac. But it's uh, it's come a long way. But that I guess your reflection on that because we we've had a lot of and we'll get to Irish tennis a little bit in this chat. I think it would be irresponsible of me not to, given your given all of your different sides that you've that you've worked at mm-hmm. within within Tennis Island. But one of the big, big subjects with anyone that I speak to from Ireland is court surface. And mm. do you, on reflection, see that as a an advantage that you were brought up on tarmac or a disadvantage? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I was I started the game on tarmac, but then as once I started playing tournaments, once I started playing at some other clubs, that was when I had to adapt my game a little bit and learn how to slice and and you know serve volley and improve my net game. Um, I couldn't just stand at the back of the court. I had a, a two handed forehand when I first started because I had no coaching. I don't have a clue. I just okay, this felt comfortable and. Uh, decent little athlete and kind of pieced it all together but um, yeah over time my, my game evolved to, to quicker points yep. um, had lost the ability to maybe hang in a rally and, and grind out a point and yep. uh, understand how to play effectively from the baseline yep. um, so yeah it, it was interesting I'd forgotten how much I hated those courts until I moved back to Ireland in 2016 and started playing some tournaments and leagues and stuff like that. And just going, these are just awful. I mean, I just, they're just awful yeah, But yeah. for, for, for a high performance player, for somebody yes. who's trying to develop for older people, club players, fantastic. You play in the rain, yeah. you get to, you know, especially in Ireland and, and the UK, as you know, you, you probably wouldn't get to play if we didn't have those yeah. surfaces that could absorb the moisture. Yeah, it's, it's it's a different sport, though, isn't it? It's not, it's not. It is. It's not. It's not. It's Mm. not the sport that is, that's played everywhere else. And actually, one of if I go through all of these podcasts, probably the number one comment I would take, it was a comment that was made, and we were talking to Spanish coaches, and they were saying how clay, is the best assistant coach you will ever have. And it was yeah. and, and it was such a nice comment, you know, mm. to just to just to when you really think about that and you think what it's teaching you all the time, you know, every time you're stepping on the court. And I guess if we take an artificial grass court, and for those listening who haven't played on artificial grass court, especially a wet one, the ball's not bouncing a whole lot. You know, the ball's skidding mm. through below you at the height of your knees. You know, you don't have a whole lot of time for too many take backs. You know, you're hoping to just get a decent contact on the ball. And if you do get a good contact on the ball, it, it probably ain't coming back again. <laughs> so, so that's really the laziest assistant coach in the world. And, and, I, and I don't think yeah. sometimes we quite realize how much our environment teaches us. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you're you're led into a false sense of security uh, because it's just yeah, who can hit hardest? Like you said, you get one clean look on the ball, or you get just slightly ahead in the point, you probably won that point, and you're just you're not learning how to, you know, maybe uh, get yourself back into a point where you're in a say defensive or neutral defensive position, and then being able to move on to offense with one good defensive shot. You just don't learn that skill on on that surface, unfortunately. By the way, I absolutely love it. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was, it was like I had Connor, I had Connor Island on here, and Connor was a much better tennis player than me in the end. 
but I think I beat him on one leg on the artificial grass courts because yeah. my my one hit didn't come back. You right. know, but if that happens on any other court, I got no chance. Right. Yeah. It's it's definitely um, it's something I struggled with when I moved to the states because now I'm adjusting. I played on very slow courts, hard courts on in in Fresno. And I really struggled my first semester because I was used to playing these quicker points and I'm, I'm losing to the worst players on the team because yeah. I can't string a point together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the States, which is, is really been, I guess, between the States and Ireland, that's been, that's been your life. You, you mentioned that around age 16, that's when you started to think US, US scholarship is what you wanted. Where, where was that inspired from? Where did you hear about U.S. college? Because I guess back in our day, it wasn't as frequent as it is now. Well, the, you know, we, we had a tradition of our, our better players heading over to the States, older guys than me, guys like Owen Casey, who I would have looked up to quite, quite a bit. <clears throat> you know, you had guys like Tommy Hamilton, Stuart Doyle, the Collins brothers, um, all these guys that were maybe a generation or a few years ahead of me, all going to the States. And so my, my parents <laughs> weren't going to let me quit school and per- pursue tennis. Um, and, and so I, I knew I was going to college. I convinced them that maybe going to the States and combining the two was, was a good option. They, they bought into that. Um, and actually, Peter Wright, who's the who's now currently the, the men's coach at Cal Berkeley, he was our Irish Davis Cup captain. And he came over one summer and kind of gave a, a talk to some of the better Irish players about the college tennis pathway. And, and from that point on, I was like, OK, right, that's that's what I want to do. And, and uh, let me figure out how I do that because yeah. <laughs> there was no Internet. There was there weren't a lot of resources, like you said. So it was kind of us on our own trying to piece it together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of the U.S. college journey as a player, was it what you imagined it was going to be? That's a good question, Dan. Um, trying to go back to my teenage, immature years. I, I really think it was. I mean, I, I fortunately had been over to the States a couple of times, played Junior Orange Bowl and and a couple of other events in, in the States. So I had some familiarity with it. But again, had, heading to Fresno, didn't know much about Fresno. I don't think many of your listeners know where Fresno is. It's between San Francisco and LA. And fortunately, yeah, there was a few of older Irish players who had played for the coach, Michael Hegarty. Uh, He was an assistant coach at Arkansas and uh, it all came together just uh, kind of out of luck really. But yes, I think, I think what I underestimated was just how hard I'd be working on a daily basis. I just didn't know what it was to work hard or to grind as a tennis player. I really had no clue. I mean, I kind of played an hour or two a day and back in Ireland played a set here. didn't really have anybody pushing me out of my comfort zone by any means. So I think in terms of the training, it was very different to what I was anticipating. I probably thought I was better than I was. Uh, But in terms of the lifestyle, combining the tennis and the academics and uh, being on a team and and uh, and really enjoying the environment that I was in, yes, it that all lived up to my expectations. And how much now that you're still involved in college tennis, how much has college tennis changed since your time that you were playing? Well, I think at the at the higher levels, it's changed 
dramatically in terms of the amount of resources that are now available for to the coaches. I mean, how much the coaches get paid, how big their budgets are, um, their kind of staff that they have beyond just an assistant coach, just in terms of strength and conditioning, you know, sending their matches out to be analyzed to analytics companies, uh, nutritionists, sports psychologists, uh, the facilities are, are phenomenal. Um, so it's really, and, and then, you know, there's a compliance component, right, as well. Uh, when you and I played down, things were a little looser and, and we could, yeah. the coaches could get away with a little bit more in terms of extra practice time. And I feel bad a little bit for, for the, the players today because I think they're almost given too much. Okay. And um, I, I think for us, it was, I, I think we were right in this sweet spot where we had just enough to, to where you weren't like, oh man, I'm, I'm short on a pair of shoes or something like that. We had just enough, but we also had some things where uh, it built our resilience and uh, it wasn't necessarily handed to us. It, there were some challenges involved and, and I think I'm better and my teammates are better because of that. I'm trying to think what they could have that we didn't. Because uh, my, my memory was, I mean, that's what blew me away. I was like, this is like, I've got, I break a string and I pass it to some guy who actually ended up being an usher at my wedding. And I'm <laughs> like, hey, hey, dude. And then he brings it back and I say, no, dude, that's two, that's two pounds too tight. Go and restring it again. Mm -hmm. I had the sh shoes that I wanted. I had practice courts, teammates, we had physios, we had, you know, we, we traveled with a media guide. Okay. Granted, I'm sure that they were kind of graduates or, or interns within, you know, within the university, but I find mm -hmm. it hard apart from the data analytics. I see that. What else can they have that we didn't? Well, I think also you were at LSU, Dan, uh, I was at Fresno state. So, okay. so, um, you know, there's a difference there just in terms of the football revenues. Um, yeah. you know, there weren't probably that many schools other than LSU, maybe a few other sec teams that were able to offer what you experienced. You, you were probably ahead of the curve, yeah. but all those things have caught up and, and several yeah. schools have maybe passed LSU in terms yeah. of you know, you think of the number of indoor facilities, say now, like I coached at the University of Oklahoma, their indoor center just came online my first year in 2008. Beautiful, you know, six indoor courts. Then Oklahoma State built one that is even better. Tulsa had built one a few years prior. This is just in the state of Oklahoma, which is, in, <laughs> is one of the smaller states. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't necessarily uh, tie tennis with, with Oklahoma. But you think of this arms race. Um, that's happening and it's not just maybe what the tennis uh, players are receiving it's how the athletic departments have evolved as well yes. the number of uh, tutors the help that they're getting with their their studies the help that they're getting maybe with uh, their mental health the also their say their dormitories Dan like the the places they're living in I'm, I'm betting maybe your dorms weren't maybe the nicest uh, but now you see these <laughs> these Taj Mahals with yeah. with everybody's got their own bathroom and they've got a little kitchenette and the food is much better you know yeah. we, we probably hated the dorm food now it's at a certain nutritional level and, yeah, and yeah, quality right. uh, so I think it's just those standards have been raised probably since since even you played and and for those listening I guess they'll be saying well how how where where does this money come from 
you mentioned about LSU about the the American football, but can you just explain mm. to the listeners how how it is so professional and how this resource is available? Sure. I mean, the the really most of the revenue at, at the top universities is driven by uh, college football and the the TV contracts that they sign. These are multi billion dollar contracts over a number of years, and that revenue from those TV deals are shared with the teams within the conference. And the, the you know, also got to keep in mind the, the size of the football stadiums. Um, I know the one at, at Oklahoma is about 90,000. I think probably LSU is probably similar, or a little higher than that. So you've got ticker, ticket revenues there. You've got all the sponsors involved. You've got all the game day sa- sales. This is how these revenues are being generated. And for these athletic departments, they, they have to be able to provide equal opportunities amongst their teams, even though the football team and the basketball teams are the ones generating the revenue, they've got to be able to provide similar experiences for all the other sports. And, yeah. and so that money, for the most part, trickles down to soccer, to tennis, to lacrosse, to track and field. And um, those athletes benefit just as much as the football players do from it. And, and that's the current system. There's a lot of discussion over here about uh, how student athletes should be classified. Should they be uh, employees? Should they be allowed to unionize? You know, these cases are going to the Supreme court here in, in the next few months. Well, okay. uh, it's starting to, to really ramp up uh, now in terms of, conversations that are happening uh, within the Senate. So the next thing online is, is name, image, and likeness. And so can student athletes benefit? So if I'm, say, the quarterback of LSU, and I, I've got a big brand. If I'm the quarterback at LSU, I, I'm, a, I'm a big name. People within probably throughout the country who are football fans know who I am, but I have no ability to profit off of my name, image, and likeness. But the university does. Yeah. So that's the next thing to come down the, the pike here and, and uh, do student athletes get the ability to profit from their name, image and likeness. And it looks very likely that's going to happen. And where do you sit on that? Yeah, I struggle with it a bit, Dan, to be honest. I mean, when, when the media talks about it, they, they never seem to take into the account the scholarship these athletes are receiving, which as you know, they continue to rise, right? I mean, it's it could be anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand these days, yeah. based on where you're going, and also all the additional benefits that you receive in terms of your your health, your coaching, your travel, your uniforms, also the ability to showcase your talents. If you're a basketball player, a football player, and you're on TV every Saturday or or Thursday night or whatever it is. Um, you know, you have scouts coming to watch you, you, you know, yeah. physically, mentally, you're not really ready to play at the NFL. So you're having this, this opportunity to showcase your talents, and you're going to go on and, and receive tens of millions of dollars if you're good enough. Um, so I, I do struggle with that. And, and it is going to, it is going to have an impact on non-revenue sports such as tennis, because uh, as more of that revenue goes to uh, a fewer number of individuals, uh, that those opportunities are going to be taken away from from non-revenue uh, athletes. So it's it's an interesting time and and uh, an uncertain time for college athletics. Yeah, and I, and I think my my memory of it was just how authentic it felt to be a to, to be a student athlete, you know. And it was and I always tell the story, but 
I think Sydney 2000 Olympics, there was 26 Olympians from LSU, Mm. you know, so you're just, you're you're rubbing shoulders with these. And then there was a a guy called Clouston Bernard, just in case anybody wants to look it up and see that my story's accurate. And he was a, he was a medalist at the, at the Manchester Commonwealth games in the decathlon. So a serious event. And, and I remember watching so excited on TV and I actually lived off campus about a mile, mile and a half. And I had a push bike that I would, that I would go every day. And I used to ride and I'd quite often see him on the ride. He lived close to where I was. And after he won that, I thought, well, I'll never see Clouston again. You know, he's off, he's, he's off, Mm -hmm. you know, he's obviously a big superstar now. And it was literally two weeks later, school started again and I'm riding my bike. And as normal, he flew past me and I was like, what, you know, what, what are you doing? You know, how, how come you're back? He was like, what you have got, I've got economics <laughs> at nine o'clock, you know? And it was, it was just such a lovely way that, that, that uh, and like I say, authentic way to be living. And then, you know, obviously next stage for some was that they went on and signed million dollar contracts and and that's the way that it was it just seems to me that if it gets too professionalized like that that quite quickly the scene could be pulled from it all really yeah uh, you're right I hadn't really thought about it in in that way and I yeah remember I mean as coaching at University of Oklahoma and and you know Blake Griffin is is in the who's one of the top NBA players right now I mean he's sitting in the training room next to one of my players and and it's it's like you know this guy is getting ready to sign uh, multi-million dollar deals and and uh but there he is getting his ankles wrapped and chatting and, and uh, you know, not he's just going about his business as a student athlete. And yeah, it would be a shame to, to lose that, but that, that, that looks like the direction we're going. And because so much is relying on that. And, and I guess for anyone that follows college sport closely, you would have seen there was a lot of panic around COVID, you know, whether, whether the American football season was going to go ahead and for the reason that it's bringing in so much revenue we've already started to now see some tennis programs that are falling by the wayside as a as as a result of that what's the current state of play with that in america right now it's a concerning time for sure dan and and we're not ever really sure why a program is is cancelled i mean we we you know you can guess right but but sometimes it's athletic department mismanagement uh, yep. uh unfortunately they just canceled the the men's program at fresno state where i played uh, this is going to be their last season most likely wow. and a lot of that was because of decisions that have been made uh by leadership there in previous years and now tennis is is paying the price for for poor decision making um i think in some cases athletic departments wanted to reduce the number of sports they sponsored and COVID was an excuse for them to do that yeah. under the cover of COVID. And in some cases it's very legitimate. The, the university's struggling and their athletic di- director or the president of university, they're kind of playing a game of Tetris and they're trying to figure out where, where does everything fit? And if we need to save X number of dollars, well, if I cancel tennis and i cancel wrestling and track and field i can save this amount of money and oh if i need to save this well then i'm going to take out tennis and i'm going to add in some other sport so so they're just trying to figure out 
where they can save money. And sometimes the, the size of tennis, uh, because it's smaller rosters, uh, sometimes that benefits us because they're not saving that much money. And sometimes it might just be that extra little bit that they need to save and they're not upsetting as many people because it is a yeah. smaller team and it's easier to cancel. So since last March, uh, across all five divisions, there's been approximately 60 programs that have been canceled. And that's, uh, that's going to, again, impact future generations, right? There's going to be less scholarships there for the next generation of, of Dan's and Dave's that want to go to the States and, and, and play on a tennis scholarship. And in terms of that, you're talking about kind of future scholarships. I've, al- I've always thought over the last few years that maybe we're already getting to a point where it's going to burst a little bit in terms of scholarships because so many so many federations seem to endorse U.S. college as the way now, you know, and then mm. obviously the pro tour, there's knock-on effects with COVID, there's knock-on effects that people aren't making a living on the tour. So more and more and more academies, I've been on it for 11 years, but it feels like more academies now are starting to push that direction as well. So, mm. so more people looking, less, less opportunities. What mm-hmm. does that mean in terms of your job and what can you do about it in terms of what, what's your official role right now working, mm-hmm. working at the ITA? Yeah. So I'm managing director at Collegiate Tennis Association. So we are basically we play two uh, dual roles. We're, we're the governing body of college tennis. We oversee NCAA Division One, Two, Three, NAI, and Junior College, and we're also coaches association. That's how we were established as a coaches association to yeah. represent our coaches. Every sport, every college sport in America, <clears throat> you know, you've got the NCA that is is the governing body of college sports as a whole. Yeah. Um, but then you have a coaches association for each sport. So we've kind of evolved where. Uh, we're not just providing coach education. We're not just doing awards. We're not just just running events. We're also advocating for the the future and the health of of college tennis. So, right now, what can we do? We we're actually conducting a, a study on Division One college tennis and trying to understand are there changes that potentially need to be made to ensure the safety of college tennis for for many decades to come. Um, so we've partnered actually with the USTA, the governing body of tennis in, in America, and um, uh, kind of a consultancy firm to conduct surveys, conduct interviews with athletic directors, with university presidents, with various stakeholders to understand, are there some changes that we need to make to prevent programs from being canceled going forward? You know, sometimes our coaches want us to be able to give money to to save a program. We're not we're not the USTA. We don't have the yeah. same kind of budget uh, that the USTA have. But sometimes it's advocating for the coach, for the program, speaking with athletic directors, speaking with presidents, trying to reinforce the benefits of of maintaining a college tennis program and uh, trying to find some solutions. Also. Having them, I mean, one of the latest things is trying, because, you know, the facilities over here, Dan, and, and oftentimes those courts go sitting for hours on end yeah. and working with the USTA as to how we provide grants as to start programming on these courts so they can actually start generating revenue. Like I mentioned earlier, I call them non-revenue sports because football and basketball, they charge tickets, so they yeah. generate yeah. revenue. Tennis, 
across soccer, they don't charge tickets, but a tennis facility can generate funds. And that's something that we're looking into to helping, helping more. I would kill for one of those facilities mm, I to, know. <laughs> to run my academy. I'd absolutely kill for it. I can share you some figures, some finance models that I could build together. There is a lot of money and a lot of revenue that can be created if that's done well. Right, right. And our coaches are, are starting and, and some have done an amazing job of that for, for many years and, and have been ahead of the curve. But I think we're, we're going to have to get more programs online doing that. Not every, every college in America has their own facility, but those that do, um, how are they making sure they're maximizing that court time? And it doesn't necessarily have to be them out there teaching the lessons after they've been recruiting and working with their team and, and doing everything else that a college coach does. But there is an opportunity there to generate revenue where a lot of other sports don't necessarily have that same opportunity. You know, volleyball, who use the the gym yeah. that they might use for wrestling, they might use for basketball. They, they don't have the opportunity to do that, but tennis does. And also I would say build a community around it as well. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to build revenue directly, but I think it's another, it's another thing to, to build a community and people like to be part of something, you know, mm. that's that as, as, as human beings, we, we like to feel that we're, we're, we're part of a tribe in some way and, and what better way than almost to, to put our, our tennis college athletes on a bit of a pedestal and create a community around that. All of a sudden your ecosystem grows, you're getting lots more people coming to the matches, you're getting mm -hmm. more marketing opportunities, you know, you're getting the whole, the whole thing going, you know, and I'm, it's amazing what we're capable of when we get pushed into that corner. And, and, and I guess maybe some college coaches have been in a place where their job's pretty secure. They make pretty good money. They do a decent job every year. They make some money out of summer camps and they haven't had to really push. Uh, but when, when it's about putting food on the table, keeping your job in line, it's, you quite quickly come up with these ideas and, and get that driving force behind you again. Mm -hmm. uh, no, you're, you're dead right, Dan. And that's how we're looking at, that's how the USDA is looking. We're calling them community hubs because there are so many benefits, not just generating that revenue. But like you said, those are individuals that might be willing to give to your program, right? They might be willing to make a donation and, and uh, you know, help resurface the courts or maybe work towards building an indoor facility or something like that. So yeah, you're spot on. And I think coaches are, are recognizing that now and, and, the days of, of probably just recruiting and developing players may be gone. And then yeah. I think coaches are kind of reckoning with that, but traditionally, Dan, uh, you know, those coaches that have maybe had the most success in the college game have recognized that early yeah. and they've not only recruited great players and developed really good players and had, had very good teams. They've also built a community around them. They've had lots of players or sorry, lots of uh, people within the community care about tennis, care about yep. college, tennis, care about their teams. So as much as time as they spend with their team, they're spending as much time out in the community, going to country clubs, shaking hands, yep. you know, doing pro-ams, whatever it is to generate interest in their program. And I think those are, are, are the individuals that our younger coaches want to be looking up to and learning from. Absolutely. Mm. And you're, you're very much in US college tennis and now and, was as a coach and, and as a player. But I guess for outsiders, 
until people see it, they don't realize how big it is and how good it is and how amazing it is. And if I take a step back, it's a long time since I was, I was at LSU. Is, is it possible to replicate that in any other nation in the world? And, and if not, why not? I, I think that's a, it's a huge struggle because you don't have the revenue that is being generated by football and basketball. Your listeners need to understand that um, uh, college American football, college basketball is, is on a similar level to the NBA and, and the NFL in, in many regards. I mean, the, the football or the TV contracts, um, you know, college football, NFL is uh, huge right now and, and has been, you know, for the last uh, several decades, obviously, but the TV contracts are similar. So it'd be like in the UK, if you were able to tie a premiership club so let's yep. say Liverpool was tied to the University of Liverpool. I'm just making that up. I'm not sure there is a University of Liverpool. But if it was tied to that and, and the other sports within the University of Liverpool could, uh, could benefit from the revenue being generated by Liverpool Football Club, then yes, it's possible to, to, for it to happen on that level um, with those amount of resources. Short of that, I'm just not sure how yep. universities and other parts of the world as nonprofit organizations are able to and justify putting that much money towards sports programs. Yeah, it's very well answered. And, and, and actually, like you say, the bottom line is it's a couple of steps back, isn't it? Because I guess it then goes to something that we're not going to solve in this discussion, but how did university American football start and how did university basketball start, you know, and if a country like the UK or in Australia, or I'm thinking of real sport loving countries were able to replicate it, they'd have to create that ecosystem, which is, which is a whole, it's a whole other subject that I certainly don't have the expertise to go down the line of. Right. Right. And it's, it's, if you think about basketball and football, these are the future stars of the NFL and the NBA. It's a, it's a feeder system. It's, you know, the, the championship division in, in soccer leading into the premiership. It's, it's the, the breeding ground for these next generation of, of superstars. And, um, yeah, how you create that, like you said, in Australia, maybe with Aussie rules football or something like that. Um, but what are, what are the rules in that? country and and yeah. what are kind of some of the lines that are being crossed in terms of professional amateur it's still like i said being debated here and discussed and there's going to be many more evolutions of, of college athletics and we're talking about professionalizing things so if i take you into your professional being the operative word tennis career that lasted a total of six months <laughs> it is did you did you live by the definition of what the word professional is during those six months? Tell us about tell us about that experience. No, definitely not. I was uh, looking back on it. Yeah, such a joke. I mean, I, I graduated. I started. I started college in Fresno, January nineteen ninety eight. So graduated in four years. So I finished December two thousand one had actually broke my hand, my left hand, uh, a few weeks before uh, my graduation. I was doing some box jumps and smacked my left hand. 
uh, got back to Ireland, uh, realized it was, was broken, had a cast on, played in the national indoor championships, uh, slicing my backhand uh, that Christmas. And then basically, yeah, after Christmas, after New Year's, uh, was still in the cast, letting it heal up, came back to the States with two bags and hit the road for six months. I wasn't going back, no coach, uh, no off weeks. I was just uh, starting this professional tennis journey. And so had a certain amount of money that I was trying to make last for as long as possible. And, uh, you know, sleeping in terrible hotels, three other guys sharing a bed with another dude, not sleeping well, and just kind of went from country to country, uh, picked up a few points here and there, but uh, yeah, ate terribly. Uh, there just was no, no rhyme or reason behind it. There was no thought behind it whatsoever. It was just like, go play these tournaments and uh, see how you get on and, and sure, it'll be grand and you'll have a good experience. I mean, it, was, it wasn't very professional by any means. And I, and I feel like also, I thrived in the college system. I love playing for a team. Um, I love the structure around it, but uh, I, I wasn't able to recreate that after college and, and uh, yeah, failed, failed miserably. Very difficult. That was definitely my biggest challenge when I played was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm, and, I, and I remember it very vividly. But the first tournament I played, so I was six months behind you. I started college six months behind you and finished six months after. And I went and I played in a futures event in David Lloyd, Glasgow. And I was on the very far court and you could only see from like the glass. So the glass from the first court. So to watch my court, you had to look across four courts. So, I mean, there wasn't anybody to watch me anyway, but if there was, they would have been that far away. And I remember thinking to myself, what am I doing? Like, because I just loved the energy. I loved, I was a college player that knew the score on every other court. You know, mm. I love feeding off that. And then I actually played the doubles. And this was an even, this was an even funnier story because I played on the back court at David Lloyd Glasgow. And on the court next to us was like an old woman's doubles match going on. <laughs> and, and I'm playing against this young guy from Czech Republic who was literally spanking the ball so hard on these indoor on these indoor courts and me and James Auckland lost like a 7676 on these quick courts and as i walked off one of the coaches that was there from the LTA said that boy you've just played how old is he i said i don't know i said he looks 25 he said no he's 17 so that made me feel really bad. I've kind of come off. I've lost this 17-year-old. He said, but don't worry because he'll definitely be, be a top 10 player in the world. And he said, remember his name. He's called Thomas Burditch. <laughs> and so I've played Thomas Burditch on the back courts at David Lloyd Glasgow next yeah. to... Next to Gertrude and Ethel playing their playing their playing their Monday morning match, and it just like after a few months earlier playing at University of Georgia in front of four or five thousand people, it just right. it didn't compare. And I, I don't think people quite realize how difficult that transition is. So if mm. you were to have your time again, would you do it more professionally, or would you not do it at all? I'd do it a lot more professionally. You know, I, I would have 
really planned out out the year or maybe planned out six months uh, six months in advance maybe gone on the road for for three weeks um at a time uh, had a structure in place whether that was in ireland or, or maybe back in fresno or my coach at that time was michael hegarty who was at uh, the university of florida maybe spent some time there and and put a lot more structure maybe i would have run out of money a little faster but i would have done better and committed more to the weeks that I was was on the road but I just there was no infrastructure I didn't really have have any money didn't have a lot of guidance but I think I would have still liked to have played and and uh, had that opportunity and, and test myself at, at another level so I, I would have done it but for how long I don't know it might have been three months rather than six months because I was out of cash yeah, but I think this is the difficulty David it's like I always think if somebody comes to me and says, I'm going to give it a year, mm -hmm. I think they're done. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're done. they're done. They're done already because what, what we experience as a tennis player is, is a lot of difficulty, a lot of failure, a lot of heartache, a lot of doubt, a lot of fear, a lot of challenge, you know, all of, all of these things. Now, if you spread that out over a five, six, seven, eight year, career and you know that you've got this space you're not dealing with quite the intensity whereas if you then have this intensity of well I have to do it now I have to do it now it's it's almost impossible unless because actually if you're a if you're a genius and there's we we've seen a few of them come along in reality they don't have those worries anyway because they've been picked up by a sponsor an agent a federation and and they've had that pressure removed so if you're like me or you who are half decent tennis players but in reality for us to make a living we were going to be journeymen who were going to have to completely grind our way through well mm -hmm. actually our journey needed to be a five six seven year journey to do it now to do it properly and professionally costs money. <laughs> mm -hmm. So is it possible to do professionally without money? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, you'd have to be extremely creative with, with how you're using your time and how are you generating some, some extra revenue and being really smart with, playing league, playing French tournaments, playing UTR events and, and how you're, you're make, you know, how's your game still developing, but you're bringing in some funds along the way. I, I, I don't want to say it's imp nothing's impossible, but, but it, it makes the road a lot more difficult. And I really like what you said. I mean, you hear that all the time, right? I'll give it a year, especially from college players because they're a little bit older and it's like, I'll give it a year, but it's like, in what other, realm in, in life are, are we doing that it's like you saying okay I'm going to start this academy and I'll give it a year it's like no you had a vision for what you're trying to create what you're trying to establish and if you're just giving yourself a year it's it very hard for you to, to to establish those things so I think yeah removing that that language or those <laughs> those words yeah. from uh from a young aspiring uh player's mouths is is important and getting them to believe in in what that journey can be but Yes, you're going to have to be very creative in how you're still developing your game. You're bringing in some money 
Um, you're, you're dealing with those ups and downs. Um, you know, do you have people around you that are maybe willing to work pro bono and give you the advice you need along the way and, and the coaching and things like that? So, yeah, your journey just got a little bit harder the, the fewer amount of euros or pounds or dollars you have backing you. Yeah. Or you understand what that stepping stone is into a greater purpose and, and goal and reason for why you're doing it. And I think, I think that's a big one that certainly I, I certainly try to do at the Academy and I would say should be part of the college college journey as well uh, of education of saying, okay, right. You, you're going to play on the tour. You've got your goals of what you want to achieve as a player However, I am a massive believer on you getting the return in investment that you put in. So if it's mm. you doing that for six months, that experience you had for six months, I would imagine has, has, has helped you in lots of ways in the other roles that you've had. Mm. You, you know, so, so rather than just looking at that six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years on the tour as a failure, can we help the players to understand that actually the longer you go here, the more, and, and, and I'll, I won't use his name, but a player that I've worked with, we had a thing and, and he wants to work in high performance sport af afterwards. So actually the way we've reframed his failures is he has to experience those failures for him to be able to go through those emotions and feelings and difficulties that are going to help him to be able to help people in future. Mm -hmm. and and almost that and almost that greater purpose and and i guess that also goes into what you're saying about just going into it without any direction you know if you've mm. got that that clearer direction as you go into it and and it's your your only success measure is not to have a certain ranking but it's also to be, be gaining experiences and networks and look at a james mm. klusky from ireland you know richard branston's come through come <laughs> through for him you know so i would say that's something that's really important that coaches do with their players as well Mm, I, I love that, Dan. And, and you're, you're right. I mean, even, okay, I was 950 in the world, but I'm working in, in, you know, as a tennis executive now or an administration now, and I'm one of the few individuals that have that experience, have that background, you know, play Davis Cup for Ireland and, and uh, you know, have those networks, have that, those things on my resume that wouldn't be impressive to, to those guys listening who are top 100 or top 200 in the world. But it has helped me along the way and uh, definitely don't want to underestimate that time that I had. And like you asked, you know, would I still go do it again? Yeah, I'd still go do it again. It would look differently, uh, yeah. but I don't regret it. And, and it has helped me. So uh, there's definitely different ways that, that players can, can look at it. I'm going to take you back to Dublin Island where where you were born but i know if I, if memory serves me correct you said back in 2016 you you moved back and and at that stage you got quite heavily involved in tennis island so what what was your role back at tennis island at that at that point well, yeah, in 2016, so I, I retired from college coaching. I'd uh, been offered a, a, a position they created at, at Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club there in Dublin, a new position uh, where I'd be sports manager. So I'd be overseeing kind of all the different sports at the club there, not just tennis. And I knew I, I wanted to move into administration, into management, into the business side of tennis. And um, the timing was just perfect. Myself and my wife also had talked about could we get back to Ireland for a few years, expose our children to 
life in Ireland, my family back there, culture in Ireland. And um, so everything came together at the right time. But I didn't intentionally go back to get involved in Tennis Ireland by any means. I was there to, to work in Fitzwilliam, to have a, a cultural experience, to spend more time with my family. But as I got more involved, firstly, I could see that no one really from my generation was involved. Uh, yeah. You know, still a lot of the same people, the same faces uh, when, you know, I was playing 15, 20 years prior. And um, at the time, there was a lot of controversy around the, the hiring of the C CEO that a lot of people felt like Dave Miley should have been hired for. And they hired Richard Fahey from, from the yeah. FAI. Um, there was a lot of drama, a lot of things going on. And, but I was looking around and go, everybody's complaining, but nobody's, you know, getting involved. It's easy to sit there and, you know, complain, yeah. sit on the sidelines. So I helped out a little bit with the, the Irish Open that was at, at Fitzwilliam, got to know Richard and staff at Tennis Ireland a little bit more. I was involved in, in a, a strategic process. I started sitting on some committees um, started helping with some tournaments and trying to get get some tournaments going and just helping where I could. Um, and that just evolved eventually into me uh, being asked to, to join the board of directors and kind of overseeing the high performance portfolio. So uh, it just kind of evolved over time and I'm still sitting on the board of directors. I've got uh, a few months left on my three-year term. So does that mean that you can't, I can't dig really deep into Irish tennis with you because you're still on the board? No, I'll share with you what I, what I can, Dan. <laughs> I, I, think, I think my big thing on it, Dave, and I've had, you know, I've had lots of people now from Ireland on the podcast, mm. and I say this all, you know, I've, I've helped out the Davis Cup team. Yep. I, I feel I have Ireland in my blood. I do, you know, and it's, I, feel, I feel close to it working with the Bothwells and, you know, uh, all of those things. It just seems to me that there's such an issue that, nobody actually, like you're saying, is grabbing the bull by the horns and saying, right, there's almost an acceptance of mediocrity that, that seems to run, that seems to run through it. And yeah, that's just because we're Island. That's, that's how it is. Yeah. No, no, no. We're, we're Island. You know, we can't, we, we can't do that. Whereas you've got Greece that have got City Pass and Sakari. You've got Scotland's got Andy Murray, Jamie Murray, O'Mara, Baltasher, or you know, you've got all of these places. So, mm -hmm. so what what is the real issue within the culture of tennis in Ireland? The real issue, um, <laughs> where to start, Dan? I mean, there there's a lot of things, right? I mean, yeah, firstly, there isn't uh, really a, a lot of history. Uh, there's there's no um superstars for our our younger players to to look up to necessarily they haven't seen necessarily that that path as we talked about earlier the the surfaces kind of the culture in general i mean tennis is very popular in ireland it's a very social sport yep. it's you know you, you go to the clubs and there's you know the the league system is is phenomenal in dublin it's getting better in, in other parts of the country so you have a lot of social tennis and I think there's there's other aspects to that as well. I mean, there's there's you know the balance that I think parents are trying to create in their children as well. Yeah, uh, and that's a little different to being in America, maybe a little bit in in the UK. But parents are, are education's important to them. Yeah, you touched on that earlier. Actually, I it's I've written one thing down from what you said earlier. 
and and you you touched on that that your mum your mum had that about academics and that's something that I've really experienced that academics is just that's what you do you do your academics and that seems to be prioritized over maybe maybe a professional sport yeah I think that's that's pretty consistent theme in our I mean when I was 15 16 and and playing against English guys you know or, or traveling a lot of them were done with school right after their GCSEs and and uh, had committed full time to, to their tennis at age 15, 16. That doesn't happen in Ireland. I, I, I don't, yeah. or, or, or happens very rarely. Um, you know, we are, are what we call the junior certificate, which is the same as, as basically GCSEs. You take them around the same time. Kids aren't leaving school after they've done their junior certificate. For the most part, they're going on and, and continuing their, their high school education. So I think that that is one barrier. I mean, it's just culturally who's, who's willing to kind of go against society, go against those norms, uh, really commit to themselves in that way. Um, and also just the costs around. I mean, that's what I found as well, moving back to Ireland. I mean, I left Ireland when I was 18. I had never lived there as an adult. Yep. So to go back and have children there as well, you know, and, and have them kind of go through the sports system, there's a volunteer culture in, in Ireland in other sports. So in soccer and Gaelic football, you know, you've got these volunteers that are willing to actually go get certified. They're willing to go do their things yeah. just to stay in the, the sport and give back. But, but parents don't really want to pay for the development of their, their kids' athletic endeavors. I mean, here, so I'll take my son as an example who played for one of the top clubs in Dublin. I'd say our yearly outlay for his soccer there was about 500 euro. Then we moved to America. He's in kind of an academy system here and we're paying at least 10 times, maybe 20 times that now, Dan. And so a very different mindset in Ireland as to how much people really want to pay. And we talked about money and needing <laughs> money to, to kind of advance and, and continue to develop your game. But there is some cultural things there that um, I think impact the development of, of tennis players. I don't know if I'm making sense, Dan. No, no, to... you are. And I think actually, because the, the other thing that always hits me is Irish sports stars in other sports are, are pretty big, you know, you've got golfers, you know, coming out of everywhere. You've got Katie Taylor, you know, the world champion boxer, Conor McGregor, you know, you've got rugby, the rugby team's always one of the best rugby teams in the world. And, and I don't know if you've maybe already answered that by talking about the volunteer culture, mm. but, but that's, that's always been a question in my mind. You know, that doesn't, if I, if I take Irish tennis culture, and in a culture, it, it doesn't mean that it's every single player, of course not. But it, but in, in, in general, it's almost like players don't want to be seen to be doing the right things. The mm. average the average player. They'd prefer to be be cool and and do mm. what they're made to do and then actually be seen to be busting their gut to be a tennis player. Yet when I think of Irish sports people in general, I think Brian O'Driscoll, I think, like you say, Katie Taylor, I think I think of the opposite, actually. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I, I think so. So uh, the, the question I can't quite put my finger on is why is it different in tennis to to in other sports? Yeah, I think you've, you've got those outliers, right, that are willing. And I was actually in the same class as Brian O'Driscoll growing up. So right, OK, so I saw that uh, he's actually a decent tennis player, Dan. Right. Okay. Um, but but you're dead right. There's this coolness factor. I'm still trying to get it off my 15 year old here, <laughs> you know. Yeah moving back here but there is like yeah you don't want to stand out from the crowd and tennis is a very individual sport you're going to have to be willing to stand out a little bit if you want to pursue that and be a little bit unpopular and I guess the community is so small right I mean if you're if you're acting a little differently everybody knows who you are in Ireland and and so if you're acting a little differently are you now the outcast of that community and that group and how does that impact you internally and and who are those those individuals that are are comfortable not being part of the 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 group i guess um you know in terms of and i hear those those you know comparisons to other sports like golf is the other individual sport but you think about in ireland we have some of the best golf courses in the world and we talked about the conditions earlier in terms of the rain and the bad weather and you don't need a sparring partner, right? If I'm a young Rory McIlroy and I can go out and play on one of the, the toughest golf courses in the world on a daily basis in oh. some terrible conditions and just get those repetitions that, that I need and I'm, I love it, you know, then I can go do that. And, and Ireland's produced those type of players. Also with rugby, they've really figured out within their school system how to get the schools working together yeah. uh, to develop these players, to have them feed in. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be defeatist here. I mean, I absolutely believe, yeah, Ireland can produce a, a tennis player. There's plenty of countries that... that but I think produced. we almost need, though, David, like, a, and again, I don't work there, so I, I can't judge it at all, but it's like mm. there the, the needs to, to me, if I, again, if I take the Spanish tennis culture, there's lots of outliers there's lots of coaches and I, and I believe it starts, it starts with us. It starts with us as coaches. So it's one thing to say that players are like that and that's what the, the culture is and that's what the parents are like, but it starts with us. So if you've got, if you've got a bunch of tennis coaches, which you do in Spain, they just don't really give a shit what anyone thinks. It's just like, actually, I'm going to take these three kids and the, I'm going to make them into the best players in Spain. And watch me do it. I'm going to do it. I don't care what you tell me. I'm going to do it, you know? And, and, and there's such a, there's such a culture of that. Whereas I would, I would from the outside look that the coaches have that cool factor a little bit as well. They have that hourly rate factor a little bit. So that brings me on to, and I don't know him at all. I don't know Dave Miley at all. I've never met Dave Miley. I have no opinion on Dave Miley. I, I certainly don't. I'm certainly not in his corner as such, but I, Dave strikes me as someone who is a bit a bit of an outlier who would come and mix some stuff up. You know, he might not he might not do it the way that everyone wants him to do it, but I would imagine he'll get his teeth stuck in. He's got a bunch of networks, he's got this. Why can someone like a Dave Miley who's got that international experience in the sport not be allowed back in almost to the country to to stir things up? Well, I, I definitely wasn't part of that decision. I wasn't even back in Ireland when uh, that decision was made by by the board to, yeah. to you know, not hire Dave Miley. So I wasn't uh, 
part of the ins and outs as you know what research had, had the hiring committee done or the nominating committee done uh, on Dave and and uh, why they felt like he wasn't wasn't the best fit at the time. Um, I know one of the things that uh, they were probably looking for as well, which Richard Fahi, our current CEO, has done an amazing job of, is is the various different funding available, government funding that's available uh, through Sport Ireland, through the Irish government, and uh, maximizing you know the euros that are coming in to develop clubs. I mean, sometimes I think we lose track of what is a federation's or a governing body's role. I mean, their role is to to uh, encourage people to play the sport, obviously, uh, to create lots of opportunities for them to play, to ensure the safety of the sport for, for, for many generations to come. I think sometimes we get so focused on the high performance end of things and not, you know, well, what are they doing with high performance? What are they doing for the best players? Well, yeah. what are you doing for the average player to yeah, keep yeah. them sport so that there is a tennis industry uh, that allows these top uh, events to happen and these top players to have an avenue to play in that. So I think, you know, I think it takes all types. It takes guys like Dave Miley, who are a little bit more outspoken, maybe a little bit more, you know, brash um, to really push, yeah. um, you know, there's other people that are, you know, have to just tick the boxes and make sure that the money's coming in and yeah, we're not course. overspending and things like that. But I think, you know, where, where, yeah, Dave and what I've tried to help with as well. I mean, I think, we've seen that there hasn't been an, a real evolution in terms of the competition structure. I mean, you talked about coaches. I think the coaches have improved uh, drastically in Ireland and, and coach education still working on, and I'm trying to help with that and, and it will continue to evolve. But when I grew up, Dan, we played tennis June, July, and August. We played tournaments. Yeah. That was it. Nothing else the rest of the year. One tournament at yeah. Christmas, a couple at Easter time during the holidays. But that was it. And so I go back to Ireland 20 years later, the same system is in place. And so like, how, you know, yeah, so the absolutely. coaching's got better. And, and I look at the players and, and technically they're very good. Yeah. And then I'm going out there at age 36, 37, 38, and I'm beating the top juniors in the country. Yeah. And their technique might be a little bit more advanced than mine. They're fitter i should i'd hope they're faster i'd hope but they have no idea how to win a tennis match and i'm literally chopping them up dan yeah. um because i understand how to win tennis matches because i have so many tennis matches behind me where they have so few and and i think that's an area that dave miley's talked about a lot and, and trying to push and i'm trying to push that we have a, a yearly tournament schedule so our players are spending less time being coached and more time competing or yeah. finding that balance yeah. and that balance has not been struck at any point yeah. in Irish tennis history and and how much involvement do you see yourself having in future because again it strikes me that I mean one of the first things when you were in position I know we had conversations I know that you spoke to lots of people and mm -hmm. and what it struck me with you Dave was you were willing to look outside of Ireland and you were, you were willing to open your eyes and take your experiences to call on, on different people for that. And, and I would certainly see you as someone who is, is absolutely perfect for the job of helping that. So, so how, how attached are you to Ireland and how much from, from afar are you going to be able to continue supporting them? Yes, yeah, still to be de determined. I, I'm always willing to help 
uh, Ireland, whether it's the, the governing body, whether it's a particular club, whether it's a coach, whether it's a player trying to come over here to, to play college tennis, uh, I'm always going to have that connection and, and always willing to help. Um, you know, I do sit on the board. So we have our, our monthly calls. I get emails. Um, but I think sometimes people, again, confuse, <laughs> you know, what, what, a, what a board actually does. I mean, the board yeah. is high level. It's strategic. It's it's we don't spend much time talking about individual tennis players or kind of the fun stuff. Of course, um, it's it's the business of of operating a, a governing body and ensuring that uh, it, it's a well-run organization and uh, tennis clubs are being built, tennis clubs are being refurbished, uh, coaching opportunities are being improved, uh, funding is going to you know, get more women involved in the sport, that it's going to wheelchair tennis, that it's going to tennis for the blind. It's not just about the high performance player, which is, which I think sometimes we, we lose sight of in these, these conversations as, as because obviously we're our backgrounds in high performance tennis and, and most of your listeners are, listeners are, are interested in that. But um, so I, I definitely want to stay involved. I want to help where I can. Um, the new high performance director, Gareth Barry, is, is, is doing a great job. But most of the new initiatives that he wanted to implement haven't been possible because of COVID. Yep. Um, and, and so there's, there's some changes that, that uh, he's looking forward to implement once we uh, get to the other side of COVID. And uh, so I'll continue to help. I'm on I started kind of a funding scheme, not I, but uh, several of us tried to start a funding scheme for our top players. Um, you know, there'll be a high performance committee. There's a Davis Cup selection committee. There's a competitions committee. There's all these things. So even if I'm not on the board, I'll probably sit on some committees and trying to help where I can. Last question, direct question. I know, you know, the whole of Irish tennis knows the competition structure is naff. Yeah, it's mm. naff. It's naff. There's not enough competition. Who's who's accountable for that? Well, ultimately, it's Ireland, right? I mean, um, the Tennis Ireland are the ones that put out a tournament calendar, uh, are the ones that work towards, um, uh, you know, uh, figuring out which clubs, uh, which levels of tournaments need to happen at, at which clubs you know, encouraging clubs to be creative with how to run a tournament. Traditionally, again, clubs only knew how to run a week-long tournament and they did an amazing job with it. And they have every age grew, you know, over 35s to over 75s, mixed doubles, open events, B-level tournaments, whatever it is. But they never really evolved. They never really got creative with all the different options, the, the fast fours, the UTR tournaments, the WTNs coming on now. So, Ultimately, it's Tennis Ireland's responsibility, but it's also, it does trickle down to the clubs as well. I mean, are the clubs willing to give up their courts for X number of days? Are they willing to give it up for a weekend? Who's willing to volunteer? Is a coach willing to not coach on the weekend, but run a, a tennis tournament? I'm not saying they shouldn't be paid for that, um, but where, where is that balance? Okay, they're coaching the players throughout the week. But now let's go see them compete on the weekend. And maybe it's everybody chips in 10 euro or whatever to make sure that the coach is paid for their, their time throughout the Saturday and Sunday. But are coaches willing to take a step back, uh, run events? Are clubs willing to give up their courts, um, you know, uh, annoy some of their members, their older members who expect a court on this day at this time? 
Um, so it's, it's everybody working together, but I think ultimately it's Tennis Ireland's responsibility to, to work hard to provide a 12-month tournament calendar, especially for our aspiring players. I reckon there's a few hundred Irish people listening to this right now. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it out there. Every tennis club in Ireland puts on two tennis tournaments a year. One, one weekend tournament, one longer tournament that might be half a week. Coaches, change your mindset. Think of the bigger picture. Stop thinking about your phone bill on a Saturday afternoon and start thinking about the tennis industry. Start thinking about what the sport's given you. Start thinking about by you giving back your time to running a tournament and watching your players compete, how the opportunities will open for you further down the line. If I can get 10 people, 10 clubs in Ireland to pick that message up, get in touch, get in touch with Tennis Island, offer your, offer your services, offer your courts and get some flipping competition going, you know, because that's where it all starts. That's where this sport starts. It starts with competition. That's when the bug, that's when the seed is planted, just like myself and David. That's why here we are 30 years later, sat in our bedrooms, having a conversation about the sport that we love. It all started by competing. So please, please take that message on board or tell me to shut up. That's also fine. I'm going to keep beating that drum and we'll get that going. And I think I'd add to that as well. Um, you know, my generation, you know, those in their late 30s, uh, in their 40s that have benefited from, from tennis and, and the life it's given them, find ways to give back. And it might be just sitting on a committee at your local club. Uh, it might be one day sitting at, at the board of directors and, and taking my spot. But uh, please get involved and, and uh, give back to the sport you love. Quick fire round. College tennis or pro tennis? College tennis. Three sets or five at slams? Uh, for the men. Uh, three, three sets. It, it, has to, it has to evolve or we're just going to keep losing people interested in tennis. Should the winner of the NCAAs get a wild card into the US Open regardless of their nationality? Yes. Net courts, should, should they play the same rule as college on the pro tour? Yes. Should there be an injury timeout or not? No injury timeout. Doubles or singles? Singles. Astro or clay? Clay. <laughs> team, team tennis when young or tournament play? Both. Competition or practice? Competition. One, practice is <laughs> one rule change in tennis. Huh. Stump me on that one. One rule change in tennis. Uh, at, at pro level, again, similar to college, no ad. Deuce of sudden death. And who should our next guest be on the podcast? Dave Fish. Former Harvard uh, college coach, um, done amazing things with UTR, uh, has some great ideas about uh, tournament systems and evolving competition. Absolutely, Dave Fish, get him on. I'll help you. You'd be a brilliant guest. Dave, you're an absolute star. You're doing a great job. 
keep rocking it. And if no one else listens to this, it's been great to catch up with you the last hour or so. Top man. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, Dan. Thanks so much. You're the best. A big thank you to David Mullins for, for coming on to the show. I've known David for a long time. We go back years and years. I do believe we actually played each other maybe in college once. Uh, I didn't want to bring it up um, just in case Just in case I came on out on the right side of that one. I'll have to look at the records. But he does speak really well. He... I actually follow his blogs. He's got some fantastic blogs that are out there. As always, Vicky is here to help me unpack the episode. And there was certainly a lot for us to go through in that one. I can't get past what he said at the start about 60 US college programs being cancelled in the last year. I mean, if we're talking eight players on a team on average, that's almost 500 players who've lost the opportunity to play college tennis. That's such a huge number. Yeah, and then not to mention all the coaches, all the physical coaches, all of the media guides, all of the physios. You know, it really is. It's a massive, massive business. And and I guess, and I know you don't particularly like my reframes sometimes, Vicky, but that is my reframe on it. You know, quite quickly when he spoke about that, yes, it is unfortunate, but maybe college tennis was becoming a little bit of a place where almost anybody went you know, and, and actually, maybe now the competition is going to get a little stiffer. It's going to Ma- have to. Well, it, it is. And then maybe it is time for people to, to step it up and not just one of my pet peeves is this, I'll just go to college tennis, you know, and it, to, to get a college tennis degree and scholarship out in America is a massive achievement in this sport. And, and, and I do think maybe that has been diluted a little bit over the last few years. And maybe what we will see is that this is a little bit more on a pedestal again and, and an achievement to really go after and an achievement to be celebrated for players that do make it to to the scholarship status. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I do still feel very sad for the programmes, for all the players, particularly if they were you know halfway through, part of that team, halfway through their four years, but also the coaches, what happens to them? Yeah, well, again, I think we touched on that throughout throughout the episode in terms of if I'm a coach of a program that's looking to close down, I guess I've got two things to do. I've got one that I can, I can showcase that I can make enough money from the program for it to continue. And we touched on this community tennis. We touched on actually doing a little bit more than what just your typical job of a college coach. And maybe, again, I'm going down that reframe route, but maybe college coaches also became a little bit comfortable, you know, and that ability to have those courts, to have that facility, you know, to be able to do that. The second thing, if there is no way of resurrecting the job at that program, there's a lot of coaching jobs out there, you know, and it might be at another college. It might be making your way up through going a, a different route uh, within your coaching. And, and I'm a big believer that the cream rises to the top, you know, and I, I, I really am. And I think it, it is sad. We don't want to see it. But at the same time, wherever bad things happen, opportunity arises. And I have no doubt for the players but also for the coaches that there'll be lots of opportunities down the road for those that really want to go after it. Well, I mean, college tennis is something that you're particularly passionate about, but you also in that episode gave a very passionate plea um, to Irish tennis about competitions there. 
Yeah, I mean, it's something, again, that doing this, and, and I say it again, we've been doing this for a year now, and when you're having two or three conversations a week, you can't help but learn a lot about the world of tennis and and be influenced by these great people that I'm talking to. And if you go back a year, I don't think I'd be as clear as this. I'd like to think that I would, but in reality, I've definitely been influenced by, by many people that we've had on the podcast over the last year. And one thing that is just so obvious now after, after having these conversations is in order to have a successful country or culture of producing tennis players or giving the opportunity to produce tennis players, it comes down to competition. It doesn't, I don't think, have to be much more complicated than that. You know, you provide enough competition opportunities. You then, if you do have the ability to then have finance attached to that so that it's competition opportunities to make some money, you are going to get people that will find their ways to do that. And, And that's something that I just am hearing time and time again that's not happening in Ireland. You know, we've got many good friends over there. We're speaking to lots of people. And and it just seems like a fairly easy win for them to get uh, without having to, to chuck loads of money at it. And I guess that's where that passion came from when I, when I was speaking to David. Whether people are going to take that on board in the right way, I guess, why would they listen to me, Dan Keenan? But ultimately, it just seems like a pretty obvious play. It really surprised me how few tournaments there are when he was talking about it. If you compare that to Spain, which we have done quite a lot on the podcast, but there really are so many tournaments here. Nearly every weekend there's the opportunity for our players to be playing, competing. And I, and I think, again, this is not Spain is better. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not that. And it's it's really not trying to patronise on it. It's just it's something that is becoming clearer to me the longer that we are here and and the and the more conversations we're having about different countries and the way that they're set up and you know I go to it and I apologize if you have listened to all these podcasts because you would have heard this before if you're a first time listener then welcome and you know this like I say might be the first time you've heard this but within Andalusia our region there's over 350 tournaments a year that's just in our region and then we this weekend have been in Alicante where there's a national regional level event. In the under-12s, in the qualifying, there's 110 kids. Main draw, 24. The same in the 14s, the same in the 16s. You've got the, okay, maybe not quite as many girls, but there were still 60 or 70 girls in the qualifying. And the thing that also hit me even more so about this weekend, there was another national regional tour that was going on in Barcelona at the same time. And, and those numbers would have been the same. Now, if you do the maths, that's a lot of children playing tennis. Yeah, I mean, it's simple maths, isn't it? If you've got that many people competing regularly, that is going to filter through all the way up. And I don't think it's any surprise that Spain have seen so many players coming through over the last 10, 15 years. I couldn't agree more. And, and yeah, again, I will keep beating that drum. This is not a a pro-Spain podcast as such. It's just when we're talking about Irish tennis, British tennis, which are obviously big passions of ours as well, it, it does seem like that is an area that is missing. But I do want to shift gears a little bit as we're talking about starting to play tennis. And we are here sitting here March the 30th. 
and obviously yesterday was a was a big day back in the UK. It was fantastic to see all of the pictures, all the videos. And the sunshine. And the sunshine as well for, you know, we've got a big amount of listeners back in the UK. So a big well done to you all. Well done on getting through these difficult lockdowns. And hopefully, you know, the, there's light at the end of that tunnel and you guys are back up and running. And, and I just really do hope that as we were able to do when we came out of our tough lockdown a few months ago, just so grateful for the opportunity to be doing a sport that we love on a daily basis and yeah, go for it. But just watch those bodies. Don't do too much for the first few (laughs) days uh, because there could be some injuries on the way. And a big thank you to you as well for listening while you've been in your lockdowns um, in the UK and in other countries around Europe. Um, We have had some lovely messages from people saying that it has kind of kept them motivated throughout the lockdown periods. Um, We got a lovely review on Apple Podcasts from DK90 to say, Top work, Dan. Your podcasts have been such a big part of getting through the past year. It's been a challenge for everyone. And I think I can say for most people involved in the tennis world, your chats have helped keep us motivated and inspired through the year. Keep up the great work and I look forward to seeing when you get Sir Andy on. So do I. <laughs> yeah, thank you for those lovely messages. There really, there's too many to read out, but we will continue to read one or two out each episode. It, it really does mean a lot to us. I do hope that the messages will continue and you will be continuing to listen to the podcast uh, now that you are back on the court. Uh, we have to stress this started in the lockdown 12 months ago. However, we're now at the point where this podcast is here to stay. We're not just here for the lockdown blues. We're here to continue energizing you guys, entertaining you guys and educating with, with all of the different guests that come on the show Next week's guest is going to bring a tear to your eye. It's been an amazing conversation that we've had. I know that there was some tears going through the edit as well, and that is Tom Gullickson. If you don't know the Tom Gullickson story, Google Tom and his his late brother Tim, and he speaks about it all. He's a great storyteller. We get Bjorn Borg stories, we get Jimmy Connors stories, we get John McEnroe, Pete Sampras. You know, it's a real classic for tennis fans and we'll continue to bring lots more to you. But until then, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables.